Hey everyone, I hope that you are doing well today. I found this really fantastic book that is just perfect for this channel and I thought I'd show it to you today. It's called The Historical Atlas of the Celtic People and this is the German edition, but there's also an English one, which I'm going to link below. And basically it's just 500 pages of maps all the way through. It's like every other page is a map related to Celtic history. So I'm not going to be able to go through the entire book, obviously. But I thought we could start at the beginning and then skip through towards the present. And I thought we'd start right here in the Late Bronze Age. So there would be 1200 to 800 before our time and during that time you had a sizable Celtic settlement in the center of Europe which is known after this little town right here, Hallstatt. Now I think I've mentioned Hallstatt before in one of my videos. You probably know it because it's everywhere. Um, it's been called the most Instagrammable town in the entire world and that might be true. So it's a very very beautiful place, uh, sort of tucked in next to a lake and some mountains. Very difficult to reach historically. The first road in fact was built around 1900 so for a long time you had to go there by boat across the lake. But interestingly, despite its remoteness in around uh, 1850, someone discovered a burial site there, or in fact an entire cemetery with over a thousand graves. And they showed that a lot of people lived there, um, and in fact lived there for a long time. And the reason for that is hidden in the name, in the first part of it, Hall. So H-A-L-L. -L. And that is an old word for salt. So there are salt mines here that date back to that time. In fact, there are a number of settlements in the area, like Bad Hall or Hallein, where again you have this Hall in the name, meaning that you can find salt mines there, many of which you can also visit, among them the one in Hallstatt. And I went there a couple of years ago, and you get a little history tour that goes back to the late Iron Age. The Hallstatt culture, however, is sort of only incidentally named after Hallstatt. It was a larger area here in Central Europe where you had um, Celtic tribes 
and you can see here that it is indicated even larger but I think this might already be the later stage, the so-called Latin culture there's no clear cut between the two cultures um, but you can see it sort of in the way that things were decorated so in the way that artifacts looked you can also see that you had quite a lot of connections to the south and the north so we're gonna have a closer look at that in a moment one of the interesting things about the Hallstatt culture is that like I said it's sort of at the stage of the late bronze age moving into the iron age and iron came here from Anatolia at the 12th century before our time from the 12th to the 8th century it then was moved northwards to Hallstatt and further northwards Scandinavia And it was also brought along through the Mediterranean along the coastlines and then between the 8th and 5th century we see the knowledge and the use of iron move onwards towards these northern and western parts of Europe So before we have a look at this Latin culture, just one last word on Hallstatt because like I said, it might be the most Instagrammable town and the wild thing about it is Hallstatt has about 780 inhabitants and before the current situation it was visited by up to 30,000 people a day so it was extremely popular and of course you can imagine that it put quite a strain on the village um, but they've taken some measurements in the meantime and well, I definitely think they um, had some benefits from it as well right so here we have another map of the Celtic people this one goes from the 7th to 8th century before our time onwards to the 3rd century before our time now I'm not quite sure whether this draws on a different source compared to the first map but there are some differences here for one if we look at the uh, area that was used for settlements during the earliest age here from the 8th to the 7th century we see that Hallstatt is in fact barely on it it would be somewhere here in this area I think so on the very fringe here in the south while the Celtic area would extend north all the way to these Frisian islands but on the map that we looked at beforehand we see that Hallstatt would be right in the middle and 
the area of settlement extends quite far to the east, but not that far north. So we don't have an indication of the time period here, it just vaguely says 750 to 450 before our time. Here it's a bit more concrete, the 7th to 8th century, but this seems a bit odd to me. We do see quite a significant expansion uh, during the 6th to the 5th century before Christ, which would then encompass almost all of the area that is uh, France today, as well as Belgium, and the British Isles in their entirety, as well as some parts in Portugal and Spain. During the 4th century BC, we then have a move towards the south, here towards the Etruscan areas, and towards the east, along the Danube. And in the 3rd century BC, the Celts arrived in what today would be Bulgaria, and in parts of Anatolia. So they were on the move. Interestingly, they of course also had quite a lot of trade routes, considering they lived in such huge areas. And we can again in green here see the area where they set up. This would be about 500 BC. So again, this doesn't quite if we look at the Iberian Peninsula, we see that this here is a much larger area, let's call it in. But, well, it is how it is. So let's have a quick look at the trade routes. One of the very important ports was here in what is today Marseille. This was initially a Greek colony. And from here you would have a trade route that went north or through the valley of the Rhone and then continued onwards through the valley of the Loire which moves into the Atlantic today by Saint-Nazaire. You would have Nantes, the historical capital of Brittany here. And from the ports in this area, you could then continue north to Cornwall. And in Cornwall, you have tin, which was very important, of course, to create bronze. A second route would pass by Brittany towards the Gasconia. And then you could move across land here, back to the port, which today is Marseille. Or you would have another trade route that would go all around the Iberian Peninsula. With two stops here. 
through the Mediterranean towards Cartago and then onwards to the Middle East. So that would be the first and the second route, and then right here we also have the the Einsteinstrasse, the Amber route, which connects Italy and Denmark and the Baltic Sea. So here this yellow line indicates Amber was found along the coastlines in Denmark as well as a little further east here and this would be brought south with the use of different rivers and be brought here towards these Etruscan areas which are colored in yellow. Here we have Hallstatt with salt, which you can see has been found in the entire area. And we can see that wine was also very popular. So Etruscan wine was brought north to this area, all the way up here. And we have some more wine, probably from the coastal area here, considering we have so many symbols here. And it was also brought north along the Rhone and the Loire. So that's quite an extensive trade network. And maybe one more interesting bit here, we have the areas that belong to Cartago, a little bit in Sicily here, in Sardinia, the Balearic Islands, and here. I think one of the most iconic artifacts that the Celts left us are these torques. They were used either as bracelets or worn around the neck as a status symbol. I think you can find them in most museums that have a part on Celtic culture and also see them in quite a lot of paintings from the 19th century for example where Celtic people are depicted. Of course history was very popular in the 19th century. Let's move on a little. Here we are in the second century AD, and we see that well, Cata 
Chicago still here, Kartash, but it belongs to the Roman Empire, which really is unbelievably massive and really impressive feat to create such an empire at that age. And we can also see that the area where the Celtic people settled had changed a little. So here these striped areas are where you would find Celtic tribes, which are in the areas that are today um, Belgium, Switzerland, large parts of France and the Iberic Peninsula, as well as the entirety of the British Isles. But we can see that here in the eastern parts there are no indications of any Celtic settlements during that time. So the ones that we had in Anatolia for a bit or in Bulgaria were already gone again. And here you can also see that from the time of the Hodgstadt culture there had also been a shift towards the west. Right, now let's jump forward a little in time. And let's look at British Isles. Specifically here we have England with the different provinces of the Roman Empire. We have Hadrian's Wall here and the Antonine Wall in the north. And we can already see that we have other populations moving in. We're in a fourth century here. We have the Angle and the Saxons and here in the north we have uh, an indication of the Picts which probably was also a Celtic people that lived here in the north. The uh, Germanic tribes here, this is quite interesting, I didn't know that until a couple days ago historically came from, let me see if I can find it, here what would today be Denmark, we have the Saxons here and the Angles here, Angle, and in fact this little peninsula is called Angeln until this day, so this is where uh, specifically East Anglia but also England as a whole any English language have the name from this little place across the North Sea. My mind was blown. <laughs> so with these people moving in and the Roman Empire crumbling, we soon have some new 
um, provinces or kingdoms. In England we have East Anglia, which I've already mentioned. We have Kent, and then we have Essex, Sussex, and the Kingdom of Wessex, which all have the Saxons in their name. So they settled here in the south. Then somewhat in the center we have Mercia, which developed a little later as a kingdom. And in the north we have a Northumbria. Now, here we can see the parts in pink are places that are under Celtic British um, ownership. So you can see there's again a shift towards the north and towards the west. So Celtic at this point would be what today is Scotland, Ireland in its entirety, the Isle of Man, Wales, and Cornwall. But for example here in Wessex we already see that we have these stripes indicating that these were areas that were lost to the Anglo-Saxons between 500 and 770. The same is true for basically the entirety of Northumbria and Cumbria, as well as uh, quite a significant part of Mercia. So the Celtic people moved further and further north and west. And from here, from the Middle Ages, we're now going to make quite a big jump into the present day. I think if we went through the entire book, we'd still be here tomorrow. I don't know if our camera will last that long. So like I said, there's a move towards the north and the west, which looks quite drastic when we look at this map here. Here we can see the areas in which there's still more than 50% of the population using Celtic languages. And you can see those are quite few, unfortunately. Altogether, there are six different Celtic languages today. We have Scottish Gaelic, Irish Gaelic, we have Welsh and Breton, and we also have Manx and Cornish. Now, the interesting thing and the reason Manx and Cornish are colored in red is that these two languages died out at some point. But today you do have a good number of speakers again. And you even have some 
native speakers again whose first language is Edamang so Cornish which I think is a really amazing feat so there's a lot of perseverance and a lot of um, willpower that went into that unfortunately all the Celtic languages except for Welsh are endangered um, we can see that in the numbers here here in the north we have Scottish Gaelic with a total of 66,000 speakers but only half of them say that they use uh, Scottish Gaelic in their day-to-day -day lives you can also see that they are mostly located here on the islands of the Outer Hebrides however these are also places where the use of Gaelic has fallen quite significantly and a lot of the efforts to preserve the language are happening in uh, cities this is basically true across the uh, across all the regions for example here in Imanes if I'm not mistaken in Ireland we're seeing a similar situation the language is most prominently used here on the western fringes however you have a much greater number of speakers namely 1,100,000 um, I think it was just an even greater number which was closer to 1.5 million or even more but again in their day-to-day -day use it's only about 22,000 who really use it in Wales you have about 600,000 speakers and about half of them say that they use it regularly so 326,000 that's quite a good number so this is a really productive area um, for the language a bit of a difficult situation here in France with Breton it is used in Lower Brittany and in fact it was brought here from Great Britain uh, in the Middle Ages so it's closely related to the uh, Celtic languages of the British Isles in France um, minority languages are not recognized there's only one official language in France which is French however legislation has eased up a little bit um, in the last 10-15 years or so these minority languages have actually been recognized as part of the French heritage until the 90s however for example it was not allowed to give kids uh, Celtic names so that too took a really long time and until the 1960s it was not allowed to use the Breton language in schools for example so today you have a lot of effort being put into the language making sure that people learn it that they have opportunities to learn it but there's also just um, a lot of history that has to be made up for if we just quickly go back here to Ireland uh, since Ireland is a member state of the EU 
Irish Gaelic is also an official language of the EU, so that's also a really good thing for a language because it means that all official documents of the EU are translated into Gaelic. So again, that's a good thing for a language, meaning there's a lot of language planning going on. And Irish Gaelic, of course, also has an incredibly long history dating back to the 4th century, so it would be a shame if it was lost. You can also differentiate between these languages based on how they're related to one another. Scottish Gaelic and Irish Gaelic, as well as Manx, are closely related. They are the Gaelic part of the um, Celtic languages. And in fact, Scottish and Irish Gaelic for a long time were very closely interrelated. So there was a common literary language all the way until the 16th century. However, the spoken languages started to diverge quite a bit before that. And Welsh, Cornish and Breton are also related. These are called Bretonic languages. So you have two parts here. Historically, there were more uh, Celtic languages, as you can imagine. However, they've died out. Pictish was probably also one of those, which was spoken here in the north. But it's not quite clear whether it really was a Celtic language or not, because there simply are no traces that could um, definitely determine that. And if you have a chance to look through this uh, atlas, you'll of course see that Gaelic has also moved across into other parts of the world, like here to Canada, to South America, Also with Scottish populations, where after all you have Nova Scotia, meaning New Scotland, also to the US, to South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. Here we also have a detailed map of the Atlantic coast of North America the different languages that were spoken there, such as Gaelic from Scotland and Ireland. I think that's what this means, here in Pennsylvania, for example. Here we have Breton in Canada, the Irish in Australia, Etc. Etc. Now, before we finish, I think there's just one last part I'd like to show you about the history of the Celtic languages. So, if we go all the way back in time. 
we have the Indo-Europeans here. This theory is called Pontiac Step theory, meaning that they came from the Pontiac Step here, and then moved partly towards Europe, partly south into the Asian continent. We can see we're quite far to the east here with the Hindu Kush, Himalaya, Tibet. And the Proto-Indo-Europeans spoke a language that would later branch out into many, many different languages. One of them being Celtic, right here. And it probably is most closely related to the Italic branch, which would include Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, French, and Romanian. And the Celts from this part of Central Europe then moved on towards these islands. So again, it's a language or a set of languages that's very, very old and can be traced back to about 5,000 BC to our common ancestors. Alright. And I think with that, we'll leave off for today. I hope this was interesting to you. I definitely learned a good part researching these languages. So I wish you all a very good night and I'll see you again soon.